Welcome to the third season of The Morning Glory Project, Stories of Determination. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbinder, and together with my co-producer, Angela Washington, we bring you really amazing stories of amazing people. I'm so lucky that I get to have these conversations and to share them with you. These are conversations with people who have overcome, people who have endured, people who have gone on when others might not have. They've overcome losses or tragedies, disappointments and heartbreaks, or they've seen a goal and pursued it to its end. And what I'm really fascinated by is they don't just share that they had these stories or that they lived them, but how, what were their inspirations? What were the resources they used? What ideas kept them going? How did they dig deep and find what they needed to find to go on? Because it's my belief that when we learn how someone else got through hard times or found their goals, that we learn how we might be able to do the same. Thank you so much for listening to the Morning Glory Project. And if you like what you hear, give us a like or a share on your social media site or golly, use the good old-fashioned word of mouth and tell a friend about us. We love sharing these stories with other people. Thanks for listening. Today, I'm so intrigued to welcome to the Morning Glory Project, Margot McMahon. Lucky number seven of nine children, Margot McMahon discovered their front acre of woods, ravines, and the Lake Michigan shoreline before riding horses in prairies, hiking mountains, and sailing, while her social justice journalist parents wrote and painted their history. Natural materials like wood, sand, bronze, and stone inspired her to sculpt while being locally, nationally, and internationally awarded. Margot was compelled to find and tell their untold story to better understand herself as she emerged from a flock of artistic siblings. Growing up in this hectic artistic family, young Marco was unaware of her parents' history. Who knew that her father was a captive, force-marched between three POW Luftwaffe camps, that their mother flew across the nation in first-generation Boeing planes, later finding ways to be an award-winning travel writer and teacher while raising a large family. Margot has preserved the history of her parents' dramatic lives beyond what she observed in her own lifetime. Fasten your seatbelts, hold on tight, and enjoy the ride through A World War II Saga and If Trees Could Talk by Margot McMahon. Welcome so much to the Morning Glory Project. I'm so glad you're here, Margot. Thank you, Betsy, for having me. I'm very honored to be part of the remarkable group of women and men that you have interviewed. I'm a lucky person. <laughs> I've gotten to, to talk to some pretty amazing people. Well, Margot, your story, these are all stories of determination. And I think of your story as four stories of determination. Your mother's, your father's, you as an artist, and what brings you to me, you as somebody who's preserved the stories of your family, the legacy of a generation that's very nearly gone to us now. So that's a lot of determination in one person, but I'm going to peel it apart. <laughs> what is it about your parents specifically that propelled you into snooping past what they told you? And I'm, I'm taking from your story, from what I've read, that they didn't really talk to you about these things while you were growing up. There was not a lot of sitting around the table and your dad's war stories or any of that. You were you were just a family living with 
a million kids in the house and all of that. So tell me what propelled you into, into snooping more deeply into their story and into preserving it in books. Uh, I had a lot of premonitions that there was a lot more than what I was shown in life. And by showing, they had a purpose that they that impassioned them to go out and do very dangerous things with a very large family at home. But they felt that it was important not only to capture this for their time in history, but to tell other people about what was going on and the immense amount of changes that were happening in my childhood of the 60s and 70s. Well, so when you said they did dangerous things with a family, you have this family of nine kids. What are you talking about dangerous things? Well, my father would cover the, um, for instance, the Marquette Park riots that Martin Luther King found was one of the most volatile and scary moments he experienced as a civil rights leader. Mm. And my brother went with him and I heard some stories at dinner afterwards of what they had experienced that day. And it was, you know, flames and chains being thrown with rocks at the bottom of it, lots of rocks being thrown, just an immense amount of um, uh, anger and frustration and not not presented in a way that was peaceful and productive. So your dad was a journalist. Uh, Can you tell me a little more specifically what he did to document the civil rights era? Right. So it started before I was born. Uh, Dad was uh, originally a cartoonist during World War II. And he was, um, he signed up for the Navy, learned to fly with the Navy, uh, ended up flying as a navigator with the Army Air Force and was sending back cartoons to a magazine in Chicago as a um, uh, reporter, but with humor. So he was telling it what his experience was. And the publication in Chicago was publishing that. And I think he was able to send it past the censors too. So then he ended up shot down and in POW camps, and he continued to send back cartoons that that told what it was like to be in POW camp. Well, now, first of all, your father's name was Frank McMahon, right? Franklin McMahon. Franklin McMahon. And so here he is in Luftwaffe camps, sending, still able to communicate cartoons and images back for American publication? Well, I have the end product of that. Like I said, he never really told me how they got back. Did he carry them back? Did he mail them back? I know that most of the written messages were greatly censored, black lines through most of the message so that they wouldn't know where he was. Mm. But the drawings may have slipped through. That is my guess. Well, maybe they were just seen as silly. Maybe they were just seen as silly, playful things and not... not. And I, I have to tell you, I have a special appreciation for political cartoonists they're able to do in a single image what sometimes would take pages and pages and pages of words to convey that, you know, pictures worth a thousand word things. But it seems like they can do it with such conciseness and such poignancy that it's able to communicate. So it sounds as though your dad did some of that in his own way to kind of went under the wire a little bit. He had that through our childhood too, that one liner that no matter how sad or, uh, upset or whatever you were, you ended up laughing. Hmm. He brought humor to everything. 
Well, and your your childhood, you know, if we subtract out the the war history and all of that, the childhood itself sounds so idyllic in so many ways that this was a a family that fostered love and creativity and playfulness and all of this. This is not a traumatic family story. This is a story whose family members had some history that you had to uncover later on. Do you think that your dad didn't talk about the war to protect you or because he was just sort of a person that moved on? I think he moved on. Um, But I think there were enough clues and maybe he told the brothers more than the sisters about it. There were enough clues that the games we played were um, little army men parachuting off of balconies and mm. flying uh, kites and planes and playing kick the can where you capture someone and then free them. And maybe those were just the 1950s games when G.I. Joe was the toy. Right. They were at my house too, but, but my father was a World War II veteran as well. He didn't, but th- those games, those games were common, but I guess I'm, I'm thinking, I'm kind of reading between the lines of what you're saying and that there was perhaps a double meaning for them in your own household because of your dad's history. So tell me about his, what you, what did you do to begin to try to uncover first his history and then your mom's as well? How did you, what did you learn about, about your dad's history of being a POW? Well, I will say I was never told the story, but when my son was in middle school, he and a friend of his, Ian, um, met dad one afternoon. They had half a day of school. And at that point, I was videotaping everything. My kids did. My parents did. Just all of life was on video. So I brought my video camera and sat at the end of the table with only one hour of tape and... um, he told those boys the story like no one in my family has heard before. And fortunately, I had a videotape. So that is the family record. Now, give it a decade or two before mom passes away. And that's when dad started talking about the war. Hmm. They must have had some pact between them of if you just don't talk about it, you won't relive it. And then he started to talk with me about it a little more. And I showed more curiosity and it became one of our projects. We had a lot of projects, but this was the the main theme that carried us through the, um, the decade or so after mom died. And what did you discover? What did he end up revealing about his POW history? Well, in, in the way that he left it behind, he had a scrapbook and even where the the stars were on the cover. He's like, yeah, I guess that's probably where I was trained, but I only remember jumping out of the parachutes Hmm. because I remembered the moments and I remembered a few friends. And then we looked at the map that he had also put stars on. He goes, well, those must've been where I was in POW camp. So he really stored the memories pretty deep. The thing that was interesting was when he got to be about 89 or 90, he had a series of small strokes and then larger strokes, and those memories surfaced. So that was the time I could really get more and more information. And was that was that a traumatic memory for him, or was it just that it, how was his experience of those memories arriving? Uh, something about the TIAs, um, so, uh, things like, 
his dog's name in middle school came up and, you know, things that he had never mentioned before. All of a sudden he was remembering and I'm writing it down and then I'm writing it up into paragraphs and a story and then checking with him. And so that's kind of how this really, my rough first draft was created. Then he would hand me books. And was it difficult for him when specifically memories about the war would come up? Did it seem traumatic for him or did he just sort of, oh, this came up in here, I'm telling you this. My impression of your dad as you write about him and as you talk about him is that he's sort of, dare I say, matter of fact about it, that that he seemed to be somebody that I, I can't imagine he wasn't affected by by what was by war by and by being held captive and and the length he was he was marched between different Luftwaffe camps correct so there that can't have all been easy it could have it must have been had its challenges and profound difficulties but it seems like the way that you describe him he was somebody that chose or was able to set that away and then live life in the moment. Does that seem true to you? You're right on target. To be able to be as productive as he was, he had to put this aside. He had to tie a tight bow around it and store it in the closet, the whole memory. And so when it started to be surfaced, and when I started to write it down, it was, I think, probably very disturbing for him. It was hard for me because I've been Somehow the the culture in our family is don't ask questions, wait to be told something. Mm. And so I'm breaking through that lifelong pattern to ask questions. But then it became this change happened in him where he wanted to tell this story and he knew it was important. And he knew that my capturing it was helpful for the family because we were all aware of it. We're all, you know, it was once again, we had, we had an idyllic life. There was nothing to complain about ever. But we were aware that our father was off doing something different most of the time. And that drawing and painting was probably still part of his ongoing healing from the trauma. Hmm. His job then after the war was that he was was a, a journalist, right? He was following the the... I'm guessing the civil rights movement and other events of the era of the of the 50s, 60s, 70s, correct? Uh, yeah, through the 90s. Uh, through the he, 90s. Yes, he was called the man who drew history and wow. made about a painting a day of um, the political system from Eleanor Roosevelt through Hillary Clinton. Wow. Um, Vatican II with the bishop synods and uh, from... Pope John the Twenty Third, pretty much through uh, John Paul II, Pope John Paul II. Um, that is what he covered. So he was at the at the crossroads of so many changes in in world and American history. Just really quite something. And meanwhile, here's your mom, mother of nine. <laughs> which, by the way. That in and of itself is unfathomable to most of us, but mother of nine. And you discover that, you know, in between this mom of nine that you saw kind of just around the house being a great mom and doing what she did, that turns out that she has a history as well. Tell me just a bit about your mom's, what you learned about her. 
So uh, I knew that she had a teaching degree from Francis Parker Teaching College on the South Side, and that he she went with a couple friends who she met with once a year for a picnic to keep in touch with them. Some of them were principals by that time. Some of them had gone on to raise families, and some were still teachers. I didn't know she had trained to be an art teacher. Uh, that was discovered later. And then when she graduated, the education budget was cut by Congress. Um, college students went to school three, for instance, President George Bush Sr. went to college for three years, not four. Mm. High school students at that time were going to three quarters of a day of school. So she decided to join the war effort and be a stewardess with the um, Boeing Stratoliner, which was incidentally the same plane outfitted differently for the B-17 bomber that dad was flying in. So they were on two continents. Well, no, wait, wait, wait. Let, let me let me sort that out. So your dad was flying in, in an airplane that was later than the kind of airplane that your mother ended up being a then, what was then called stewardess, now flight attendant, right? A stewardess on that same make of airplane. But they were developed at the very same time. Wow. One was outfitted to fly over um, Germany for the most part. Other planes went to the South Pacific and hers flew over the United States to move military and materials around. So their love story is quite something, how they found each other and refound each other and all of that. I hesitate to say this word, but they seemed just destined to be together and to create this family that you have. And and in so doing, art became a huge theme in your household. You, you also said something in our conversation that we had to prepare for this one, that you said we were trained for optimism. Absolutely. That stuck with me. Can you tell me what, what you meant by that and, and how that did that evidence itself? And is art a part of that as well? Uh, yes. Whatever you're going through, try and create from that. And then you make something positive out of, um, you know, uh, troubles with a friend or um, you broke your leg, you know, try and find something like, you know, painting your cast. I mean, that's kind of what, what the culture would, would tell you to do. But um, they showed us how to whatever complexity you are in, make something from it. And that will keep you on target with a purpose that will guide you through. If you're walking through a dangerous street in any city, uh, have purpose in your mind. Think of where you're headed and you will be safer than if you're kind of, oh my gosh, I'm lost and scared, that kind of thing. So it's the, the through line of purpose that seems to touch all four of the stories that, that we're talking about. Your father's story through World War to your mom's story, not only being a mother of nine, but also a woman in her, an artist in her own regard. And this focus that you have in telling these stories. Let me click over to, to the other, the fourth of the stories, which is you as an artist and not just as a writer. So you are a, an award-winning sculptor with important pieces installed in many, many places. The example that I think shows it best is the one that you were telling me about, about Gwendolyn Brooks. Can you tell me about that woman and the sculpture that you did of her and what the significance of that is? 
Well, Gwendolyn Brooks was born in 1917 in the um, midst of the Great Migration, um, in which Blacks were fleeing the South due to violence uh, with the uh, lynchings that were going on. And so Detroit, Chicago, and L.A. were were major destinations. Um, and Chicago was chosen because our founder was a Black man, uh, DuSable. And so I think, and also the, the trains came back and forth with the Defender newspaper. So people in Alabama and Mississippi, in, on the South Side, individuals are asked, are you Sippy or Bama? <laughs> and that's what city, for the most part, in 1917, uh, individuals were migrating north. So she was born in the middle of that. And what happened was the South Side of Chicago, with the um, housing restrictions, became really overcrowded. I mean, uh, that's where the kitchenette idea came out of that she wrote about in the Becca, which was a beautiful marble and cast iron railing building that was built for the World's Fair and became a warren of apartments divided with cardboard and, and pieces of wood with multiple flames going for people to cook their own meals. And she walked into that as a young woman and started writing about it with her poetry. Uh, she became the first Black writer to win a Pulitzer Prize. Hmm. And that was for her poetry uh, uh, in the collection called Annie Allen, which is a girl growing up in Bronzeville. So Bronzeville originally was called the Black Belt until um, a newspaper reporter claimed it was Brownsville, and it's taken on that name since. Now the neighborhoods are divided up into Kenwood and different different neighborhoods. I mentioned Kenwood because that's where the Gwendolyn Brooks Monument is. And I'm, I call it a living monument. She started to write on her family's porch. That was the quiet place she had to write. And so this monument starts with a porch. And on that porch, you can sit and write there's a publishing wall you can clip your poem on, so you immediately send it out to the world, and you can present from that porch. And there's a series of chairs, um, seats, really, um, where an audience can sit. And so every year, we have one or two poetry workshops to continue her work. She was quite remarkable in um, getting out to classrooms and talking with young people. And a lot of those people are my friends now. Mm. So this is not a, a simply a statue of Gwendolyn Brooks. It's an experiential, like you say, a living sculpture that has a participatory factor. So you're keeping her, not just the memory of her alive, but the act of writing poetry together, the act of, of sitting on the porch and finding that quiet moment. It's a, it's a beautiful thought. What, what Margot keeps you going as an artist, keeps you creating what is it that you're able to capture to keep pursuing art in a way when so many times, I mean, you've been fortunate enough to be somebody who's gotten some rewards for your artistic endeavors, but not everybody does. And I'm sure that you not always have, that there are times when there are rejections or lack of opportunities or whatever. I'm wondering what keeps you going as an artist and how you, and if you connect that to your family history and your legacy. I'm going to go back to purpose mm. in my uh, finding the woods and the prairies and the lake as a place to experience nature. I also saw it 
in my in the 60s and 70s disappearing uh, woods that were where people went to look for mushrooms became subdivisions and hundreds of homes of which some of my friends lived in. Um, and so I saw that happening. I also saw more chemicals uh, around middle school. I discovered uh, Rachel Carson and Jane Goodall, and they guided my writing about science and change and what Anthropocene era was going to become in a beautiful, lyrical, poetic way. And so that is what I've tried to do with my writing, with my sculpting, with my painting, is to show this irreplaceable beauty that we're surrounded by and tell the truth that it is disappearing. And we have to turn change our own behavior. That has given me the uh, courage and the perseverance to overcome a lot as a female sculptor. It's a male-dominated world. As an Irish Catholic sculptor, um, as a um, representational artist, I became an artist at a time where every BFA program was teaching conceptualism and installation and non-object art. And yet I knew that I needed to symbolize these, these forms of nature that we can't forget. And I think it is the World War fits into this because there were so many horrors that people had seen that the figure was taken out of art history after World War II for a whole generation or two, where we couldn't see parts of people or limbs or or fragments uh, like we think of with, you know, Greek art or something ancient. For a generation or two, we couldn't look at that again. But I felt that we have to make every decision on Earth for life on Earth. And we have to remember that these objects for life on Earth are important, especially human life on Earth. So that's where Gwendolyn Brooks comes up as, oh, my God, look what she persevered through. Look what, what, what the welling up of beautiful poetry that tells it straight. You know, I love the contrast of how she beautifully described this horror that people were living. And it was happening by uh, political decisions, human decisions that rather than support life on Earth, were oppressing life on Earth. So art as activism, art as conscience, art as preservation of history, art as expression, art as coping, you really did internalize your family's um, embrace of optimism, Margot. I'm inspired to hear you talk, and I'm inspired to learn more about Gwendolyn Brooks. Where, what is the name of the park that those, in, that if you visit or, or go to the Chicago area, where would we find the Gwendolyn Brooks sculpture? Uh, so um, Gwendolyn Brooks Park is the name of it. Um, it. Now, if you Google it, look up Brooks Park, but there's two of them. So Gwendolyn Brooks is at 47th and Greenwood. Greenwood is the same block that the uh, Obamas live on, um, but a few blocks uh, north of there. 
And uh, so exit off Lakeshore Drive on 47th Street, and it's a few blocks west. <laughs> We've even gotten the directions. How often does that happen? <laughs> Your beautiful book, so Mac and Irene, A World War II Saga. This is a slim little book filled with little sketches of your dad's and photographs and documents and all kinds of things. It's a, it's a delightful little tidbit that you get to taste that era again. Your, uh, your own collection is uh, Reflections of an Artist in Bloom. Lovely. It's a beautiful book of your own thoughts about, about your own artistic process. And then coming out, even as we speak and soon to be available, is If Trees Could Talk which is the emphasis is a little bit different with that one. You want to say just a bit about If Trees Could Talk? Well, uh, If Trees Could Talk is, I would say, more focused on my mother's story as the woman who was the hub of this large family. Uh, and she also had gone through World War II enough that she understood what um, her whole generation had been through. Uh, the greatest generation, just to remind everyone, yes. went through the Great Depression, went through the Dust Bowl, went through, um, I mean, there was uh, still diseases running rampant. Um, polio. <laughs> polio was huge. And uh, tuberculosis was still, you know, uh, an issue in almost every family in in a way. So there was things that we don't even fathom being a part of our lives anymore. And then it ended with cancer coming in as um, a very troubling 20-year fight if you were lucky. Hmm. And now we have cancer as something that it's awful. It's, it is a great battle, but you can live with it. Well, all of your stories and your own art as well is evidence that if optimism is genetically passed, you certainly got it in your genes. But whether by nature or by nurture, optimism and purpose seem to be the drive in you. Margot, it's a delight to meet you and a delight to even just get a little taste of these stories. I hope that listeners will find their way to your books and to your art as well. It's Margot, M-A-R-G-O-T, McMahon, M-C-M-A-H-O-N for listeners so that you'll be able to find her. Thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project and for sharing your stories with us. Thank you very much, Betsy. It was a delight to chat with you and uh, express some of these thoughts that are deep within the creativity. My conversation with Margot McMahon is a bit of a shot in the arm, in a way. Here on the Morning Glory Project, we share lots of stories of struggle and what people have gone through, and that's as, as by design. <laughs> that's what we do. We share stories of difficulty or obstacles and how they're gotten over, lived with, endured, conquered. But Margot's story has multiple layers, and I was really struck by two things in my acquaintance with her. One is this feverish optimism that her parents had, and it was not optimism born of just elite privilege. These were folks that had seen the dark side her father being in three different POW camps, her mom growing up during the Depression and Dust Bowl, right? These were people that had endured some challenging matters, but they somehow found a way to endure, and not just endure, but to thrive. And what Margot kept coming back to, and this is the extra bloom that really sticks, 
What she kept coming back to is the notion of purpose. That when there is purpose, overcoming what's going on is more of a possibility. When there's purpose, it drives you through. And I'm thinking to so many of our previous guests here on the Morning Glory Project and how they were driven by the causes they believe in, by the stories they needed to tell, by the goals they wanted to reach, and how purpose has been a driver for lots of our guests, and certainly, most especially, Margot McMahon. I know that you can find her stories as enticing as do I, and I love that she's preserving the stories of the greatest generation, a generation that we're nearly lost, that have nearly left us. So happy for historians like that, (laughs) that have a foresight to preserve. So thank you so much for listening to the Morning Glory Project. I'm so pleased that you spent your time with us today, and I hope that wherever you are, you're finding meaning, that you're finding purpose, that you're finding optimism even in the darkest moments, that you're finding that light that drives you forward, and that indeed that light is something that causes you to bloom.